Hello and welcome to Beyond Organic Wine. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from the unique vineyard at Piscinus Ranch, California. Thanks so much for listening. Joyce Jones and Charity Potter sound like the street names of Marvel superheroes, but they're actually the real women I interview for this episode. They're better than superheroes, though, because they actually live in this messy, complex, real world and take part in the real battles that result from living with the courage to speak up and ask questions and call BS when they see BS. This episode is an expose, and it focuses on the experiences and insights and conflicts and unquestioned assumptions and prejudices that Joyce experienced and continues to experience as a woman of color taking classes in what passes for wine education currently. We did not name the institution or the instructors where she takes classes because it's really unimportant. The things she experiences could and do take place in any one education institution on any given day. I've talked a lot about diversity on this podcast. It's one of the few agricultural solutions we have to climate change. It allows us to adapt and be productive regardless of the crazy weather the year brings. It's the antithesis to our current dominant wine culture and biodiversity is the solution to our farm's health and resilience. But equally, if not more important, is the diversity of people we include and listen to and allow to challenge our perspectives. Our mental and spiritual health is an ecosystem just like the ecosystems of our farms and forests. We cannot grow without the help of diverse connections to as many different perspectives as we can find, understand, and learn from. Joyce Jones stepped into the bubble of our dominant wine industry and popped it. Her impressions of her wine education are an incredible example of how important it is to get a fresh perspective, to include those who have traditionally been marginalized, to let down our guards and stop defending, to listen, to see our hypocrisy and self-contradictions. Though there aren't many like her, we need more Joyce's in the world to keep us forever young, forever learning and growing. I want to thank Joyce and Charity for their bravery and their willingness to share their personal experiences and challenges. This is heavy lifting, it's difficult, it's lonely, and it's frustrating. And I'm not sure the wine industry deserves it, but we certainly need this help and are incredibly fortunate for these women's perspectives. I think our current wine education is laughable, or maybe cryable. It needs to be re-envisioned and redesigned from the ground up, literally. It creates and reinforces an entire structure of prejudice and exclusion that is not only cringeworthy at this point, but completely unacceptable. If anyone wants to help me build a better wine education, please email me at connect at organicwinepodcast.com. In the meantime, I'm so glad to help Joyce and Charity swing the wrecking ball through our current wine education. Joyce is a force of nature in the best sense. If you're a wine educator and you want to learn, to really learn, you want her in your class. But let me leave you all with a warning that Joyce sent me in a text. Her words, quote, The air becomes still, reminiscent of the calm before a big storm. The sheep stop grazing and look out in the field. A shadowy figure emerges from the horizon and slowly approaches. Is it an alien? Is it the death angel? No, that would be too quick and merciful. It's Joyce Jones, and she's hungry. <laughs> Gird your loins and enjoy. Joyce, Charity, thanks so much for doing this. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having us, Adam. Uh, thank you. I, could you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, you know, generally, just your names so we get your names associated with your voices on the recording, but also you know, what you do. What, what's, your, what's your daily thing? 
Okay, well, I'll start off. My name is Joyce Jones, and um, by trade, I am an educator in a San Diego County school, um, and I am very, very new to the wine industry. Love it. And I'm Charity, and I've been a hospitality and beverage professional for about 11 years now. Um, I'm kind of in transition, though, wanting to get out of hospitality and <clears throat> which is a big part of why I started taking viticulture and enology classes. Um, but I still haven't figured out what I'm going to do. Wait. So <laughs> you're right. You're in the transition exploration phase. Now I'm expecting it to be like a five year phase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. That's probably a really healthy expectation to have. Um, well, great. I wanted to talk to you guys because through charity, I met Joyce and Joyce, when I first met you, I mean, I, it's funny. I opened a, um, fortune cookie at breakfast this morning. I got to, Wendy and I had fortune cookies and my fortune cookie said, spend today with someone you admire. And I was like, I'm checked. I got that checked off at 11 o'clock today. Oh, wow. Hanging out, <laughs> hanging out with Joyce and Charity. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but when I first met you, Joyce, you just came at me with, with just non, like nonstop insights that you, as somebody who is new in wine, I was, it was so refreshing to hear just the questions that you were asking. And, and then you started digging into, you know, the class that you were, you know, the, the, or multiple classes, the education that you were undergoing in wine. And this is where I thought there was like a really valuable opportunity here to get somebody who until, you know, recently was not, not like an insider wine person. So an outsider's perspective on what it's like to, to be, to gain entry into wine through the sort of formal education that you've experienced at least and what that could potentially say about you know just the wine industry and wine education that we're dealing with here now already in the, in the, the end of the first quarter of the 21st century so <laughs> <laughs> um just to by way of getting started i you know what was joy specifically what was your background in wine and, and, you know, where, where are you now in your wine journey? Okay. So as of, um, let's see, two semesters ago, uh, I had absolutely like no background in, um, as far as like being a drinker of any sort, <laughs> <laughs> but my journey with, uh, wine industry started, about seven, I'd say about six or seven years ago, um, through being an educator, I am part of a work program for our high school students. And um, one of our one of our business partners came to me and uh, proposed uh, <coughs> growing a, a crop to allow our students to um, get hands-on work experience. Um, the area where I teach is a large agriculture area and we have a large ag program at the school. Mm -hmm. And um, so that made sense. Um, but the person had suggested, uh, you know, uh, cutting down on her, on her property, which is about two acres in a residential ag area, um, cutting down her, 
uh, avocado trees and uh, putting in a fava bean crop. Uh-huh. And I had just recently attended a conference um, and they were talking about work readiness and talked about a small program in a surround uh, a nearby city and that they were teaching students, you know, viticulture. And that's kind of the first time I ever heard the term viticulture. And so at that conference, you know, when the speaker talked about it, I thought, well, as soon as the person, the business partner talked about putting in a crop, um, I thought, well, we're so close to that city, which means that if our students get that work experience, then they can go uh, work in wine country or potentially work in wine country. So um, I introduced her to that program and she was very excited and wanted to go through with developing this program. And so I um, helped to spearhead that program. Right on. And it's it's funny. I mean, it's obviously like a valuable thing in California. If, if maybe if we were in Montana, teaching viticulture to students might not be that valuable. But right. here, here they actually have some uh, legitimate avenues of employment afterwards. Um, did what? So what led from that to you wanting to dig deeper rather than just looking at this as like, oh, this might be a good program for students to, hey, I want to be a student. <laughs> Well, um, in the beginning of uh, developing the viticulture program, the idea was to get students who are um, kind of marginalized and and not um, exposed to a great deal of um, variety as far as uh, occupational um, options. But then as the program developed and became more popular, I started to see it become more exclusive rather than inclusive, which was the opposite of what uh, what the goal was. Um, I don't know if that was done intentionally or if that's just, you know, kind of following the way society operates and not, you know, pushing against it. Um, so there were a few things that happened. Um, one and I, I don't know how to say this because um, it wouldn't sound modest, but I'm not here to uh, feign modesty, but really <laughs> that program was developed by me. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that the uh, founder of the program and the people involved did not work hard. It doesn't mean that they didn't have to research and learn and, and um, you know, do things to get it going or even spend, you know, their own money to invest before getting grants and getting uh, funding and donations. But um, really from the idea of it to designing the program and making sure that there were measurable outcomes um, in order to get the funding and as well as training um, the person in how to get funding, how to do a work program and training that person's staff, it was uh, very heavily on my shoulders. Um, but as it grew in popularity and um, I was being introduced along with some other people uh, involved in the program, I was marginalized and almost dismissed. It, there was a lot of, um, you know, oh, this person and the, you know, and the people that that were being given credit 
were white women. Mm. And I had to show them and even, you know, from all the documents to even getting, um, getting certifications and things, um, I spearheaded and led that. Um, but then when she got around to, uh, after giving a lot of accolades to the white women and she got to me, she simply said, oh yeah, and this is Joyce. She told me about viticulture <laughs> and kind of waved her hand away. And that was a little shocking. Um, but then it became infuriating as that it happened a few times again. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then when I looked at the, uh, at the participants in the program, it was very obvious that there was just one type of, you know, one type of, uh, of demographic that dominated. Yeah. The, the participants in that program. So that's what made me think, you know what, maybe I want to learn about this and possibly start my own program. So, and so the next step was you, you looked into some uh, local options for, wine education i mean correct me if i'm wrong and you started taking a course um did you do that uh, do you maybe you want to talk about dennis and and his participation with you as well but i mean how did you what was the next step in terms of taking that course and and you know what were the like the what was the course about that you decided to take so um courses, uh, one of say. my one of my colleagues at work um in the work pro in the work readiness program um I was talking about the experience with the other training with the viticulture training program and I was saying that I wanted to possibly start my own the problem is is that I don't own land <laughs> mm, <laughs> I have a yeah. home in a subdivision but I don't own land and he let me know that he actually has six acres um mm. within a you know about a 30 minute drive from me and invited me to come out and take a look at it and he said you know I'm not doing anything with it and um so he was offering the use of his land, which um, with the other program, we were working um, with about 500 vines, which probably takes somewhere, you know, in between a half an acre to an acre, depending on how far spread out the vines were. So I definitely knew that 500 vines was a lot to take care of. And so I wouldn't need <laughs> six acres, <laughs> but if he could offer up, you know, um, uh, half an acre to an acre, that would be something I'd like to look at. Um, and in addition to viticulture also add, you know, um, gardening or anything just for, um, teaching students self-sufficiency and healthy eating and to kind of add those aspects. So um, I then looked around for uh, wine classes because I, I didn't even know where to begin. And I found some and then asked, would he be interested in taking them as well? And surprisingly, he said yes. <laughs> so he signed <laughs> up. Um, so for the first semester, the fall semester, um, of 20, that would be, no, I'm sorry. What we're, we're in the fall semester right now, or I don't know, they go on some weird things The fall. So it would have been the spring semester of 2023. Got it. Okay. Yeah. The spring semester of 2023, 
we signed up for a viticulture class and a wine hospitality class. Gotcha. Okay. So both of those very, I mean, two, the two ends of the spectrum in terms of, you know, where wine starts and where it ends, so to speak. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about, you know, what was covered in those classes and some of your experiences and when you started to see things that made you begin to ask questions? Sure. So um, the first course uh, that I, they were in the same semester, but the first class that I took was the viticulture class. And I was really excited to learn about how to grow grapevines and, you know, learn about um, soil management and, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say pest management, but, you know, bug management and all of those things. Sure, um, yeah. But all, I'd have to say immediately it was uncomfortable going into the class because I felt like I was walking right into the situation that I was experiencing with the viticulture program that I helped start where, um, you know, again, there was a, a big lack of representation. Right. Of people, non-white yes. people. So, right. Yes. Um, <laughs> there were a few though. Um, we, we did have um, someone from a native tribe and then we had um I'd say, well, because then I had my daughter uh, come along and um, then there was another uh, woman who was black. She was in the class. Um, I'd say it wasn't horrible, you know, as far as representation, (laughs) but it it was still um, very apparent that it's a kind of white dominated um, as far as interest or access or, or knowledge um, about these classes, um, you could tell that it was more something that people from, uh, like the white demographic were, were more introduced or exposed to. Right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and so, uh, I, I mean, there's, where where can we start with this class? Because I well, you, let's start you, with history. Yeah, <laughs> well that that's what I was going to say. You yeah, brought up the, you brought history. up the you brought up the guy who was from a local tribe and yes. and and you told me this incredible story about the historian that was brought in to yes. talk about agri- the history of agriculture in the right, area in that in that area. Yes, so that was the first, you know after the introductions of you know uh, why everyone um, were you know decided to take the course, then uh, that took up the first class, and then the second class um, a historian was introduced. There were two historians, but one was known to be um, the expert uh, for that area. Right. And um, the person introduced uh, introduced him or herself and then went on to say, I understand, um, you know, that Native Americans were heavily in this area, um, but we're going to skip all of that. <laughs> Did that kind of dismissive um dismissive wave that I was familiar with when I was being introduced. 
<laughs> right. So right off the bat, you know, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and um, the person goes on to say, because I want to concentrate on when the Spaniards came mm-hmm. and went on to uh, give, you know, the history uh, according to their narrative and um, made mention of the young man's tribe. Uh-huh. And said that, you know, the Spaniards taught his tribe how to put in place an agricultural system. And he raised his hand and he uh, and, you know, we're talking like, you know, 1860s or, eight, you know, like kind of right. mid to late 1800s. And um, he let her know that his people, and that's how he would refer, he'd say, well, you know, I hear all the stories of my people and, you know, we had a very intricate agricultural system in place before the Spaniards arrived. Right. And she right. immediately said, no, you were hunter gatherers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Until the Spaniards came. And, um, you know, he, he was, very calm. And he just explained, you know, what has been passed down to him from his elders. And um, she very adamantly said that, no, uh, it were it was the Spaniards. And it was only until the other historian that um, accompanied, I'll just go ahead and say her, because it was a, there was a male and a female. Um, when the male uh, historian told her, actually, they did have an agricultural system in place. Um, that was the only time she was willing to hear right. another narrative. So it was almost, you know, uh, she as a white woman was unwilling to hear the story of someone from the actual tribe she was referencing, but she was willing to listen to a challenge from um, her white counterpart. Right. So um, she then tried to, you know, clean it up and say, well, maybe I'm just off by what about a decade. Maybe there was an overlap between the time that the tribe started to learn agricultural systems and put them in place. And when the Spaniards came and um, she said, what, maybe there was an overlap of about a decade. And at this point, she's addressing um, the other historian. Right. And he looks at her and he says, no. And she says, what about 30 or 40 years? And he says, try a few thousand years. Right. And oh. at that point she said, oh, well, I, I stand corrected. And <clears throat> then she thanked, thanked the young man from the tribe for bringing that up. And, um, but then they went, right. You know, went back to the narrative that she's so well versed on. <laughs> right, right. Here's the disturbing thing about that historian is that person's in a place um, to teach about the history of the area in in many other in other certification programs, not just as a guest um, in the class. Yeah. And um, that narrative has not changed. And um, I even you know, anonymously wrote like how offensive some of the material was presented and um, it has not been changed or addressed. It's just like, let's just ignore, you know, how these people got pushed out and how they were actually thriving agriculture. And ironically, the oldest vineyards in this area are on tribal land, which they like to bring up all the time, but not the history of it. And yeah. 
And I mean, it just underlines the importance of having that representation that you mentioned, Joyce, because if if he hadn't been in there to to raise his hand and say, no, that's not true. If it was just a class full of white folks, you know, would anybody have cared to correct her? You know, would have anybody even had a different narrative or known a different narrative to correct that historian? You know, it's it's yeah. So exactly, I like, and then with, and that's just one example. I mean, I use right, that like you're example, saying, like, yeah, like there's so many did, perspectives that need to be challenged. <laughs> another another uh, tribe reservation with a vineyard there, and the the tribal member was it was married to a white woman, and she took over telling the history of how the area was colonized and the brutality that happened and all of these things. But again, I was wondering, well, why does she have to tell his family's history? (laughs) Yeah. And I had to go somewhere and just stand in the corner because I couldn't take it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what am I here for? Um, So really the narrative, that's when I really... You know, I'm just thinking I'm there to learn how to grow grapes. That's what I'm I'm just here to learn how to grow grapes. But it very early on became apparent just how fiercely protective Europeans are or European uh, descendants are of protecting their narrative Mm. on wine culture. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. I just... I mean, just before talking to you, I actually commented on a on a uh, an article that I was quoted in because I had uh, I, back at the beginning of this year I published a, a podcast um, questioning whether it was time to get rid of <laughs> or if the term "new world" was problematic and um, and and. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's worth listening to, and this article is worth listening, reading to see. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to quote the article or anything like that, but what I have realized is, I think you know, people really have gotten up in arms about getting rid of the terms "new world" and "old world," which I think are are really confusing at this point mm-hmm. in history because, and, and I think what it really stems from is this definition of wine. Like what I really, the point that I made to them was I, I think what we're, you know, at the heart of this debate is not really like whether new world and old world are accurate terms, but like, because it it's only relevant if we only define wine as this thing that originates from grapes in Europe. If you expand the definition, you know, if you, and, and, and so the, you know, I, I begin to wonder um, bring this back to what you're saying is like when these things are happening and people are getting up in arms about some of these points, it does feel to me that it's this protectionism of a definition about wine, of an ownership of wine, you know, of who gets to own what wine is. And it really does feel really defensive on the part of the Europeans, you know, like Absolutely. it's like, or people of European descent or people who Absolutely. admire and, and, you know, have this love of European styled wines that it's like, no, you know, wine is this and da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, actually even grape wine, uh, you know, started in China, I hate to tell you. And they have a lot more different species of grapes in that part of the world than in Europe. Um, 
And yeah, so I mean, like the old, I mean, maybe it didn't start, maybe it started in multiple different places, but the oldest, you know, record of ferment, fermented grapes is, is in China. So I don't even think you can talk, you know, old world <laughs> in that sense, if you're just relying right. on fermented grapes, <laughs> yeah. you know. How old are we talking? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then once you expand beyond grapes, you know, I mean, people have been fermenting fruit all over the planet in every different culture and doing these different expressions. And it, it really does stem back to that thing that you found, which is like, you know, there is, you know, what, what we think of as wine or what the idea of wine that we, we seem to be teaching and that we, you know, or hopefully we're challenging that. And that's, you know, what I love about your questions and everything is this idea of it as, as this Eurocentric thing. Like it's a, you know, the idea of wine has been colonized. It's not just a colonial export, but even the idea of what wine can be and what it's allowed to be is a, is a colonial thing. Um, I, so I, what what else like i mean this was just the beginning <laughs> so i'm curious like what how did the course progress and and how did your participation be, you know how did your participation change or you know what was that like as the course went along as again very early on and we have to remember this is just a semester course <laughs> so, right right uh, you know um there were there was again a lot of emphasis on protecting european and white exceptionalism i felt a lot of times like i wasn't getting a lot of information about you know the actual growing of the vines um because any time a concept of viticulture was introduced there was this need to talk about white exceptionalism and how... Can you give an example? That's okay. really fascinating. So, yeah. um, so in the strategies for soil management, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the instructor loved to show videos about, again, like the way the earth works, and um, which is hilarious to me because I'm thinking none of us really know, right? We we make observations and we see how often those observations happen again, uh, you know, occurring within certain factors and, and scenarios. And then we just make guesses. But, you know, he'd show these videos and then when he would get into the history again, um, he would make mention that there were horrible things done. And and I'm using the instructor's words Um, in order to get to this point, you know, it's another story of European men doing some pretty horrible and awful things to the indigenous peoples here. Um, But, you know, the bottom line is we did some pretty awesome things. (laughs) He'd go on to, you know, uh, always quote, some philosophical or some strategic, you know, theory about how to, uh, you know, and, and it sounds like such an oxymoron, but to say like manage mother nature, like how do you manage, (laughs) you probably navigate, you know, nature, but to manage it or, you know, I don't know, how do you manage something you can't control? Um, he'd go into, 
ways that indigenous peoples or people that have more of an understanding on how to navigate certain climates and certain soils and areas. Um, and he really praise it, but then tell something that a white person has, um, has said at a conference and then kind of praise that person's stuff. And it would be contrary to the other information. And we got that a lot where it's like he wanted to um, go back to doing things in a natural way. And he quoted someone else. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who he was quoting, but he said that the person's quote was, look at nature and read a book. And if the two do not agree, then throw away the book. Mm -hmm. And that sounded really cool and, you know, woke and hippie and all of these other, you know, uh, all these other. Like, yeah, I love that quote. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded great, but then he'd always go back to what a white person was saying to do to kind of control um, pests or control the soil or to, or to, in essence, mm. force force European, uh, and uh, excuse me, because again, I'm not remembering the proper terms, but, you know, when we're talking uh, like vitus vinifera mm -hmm. or vitus vinifera, however you pronounce it, those are European, I don't know if you would call them species of grapes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're basically still trying to figure out how to force something that is made to grow in Europe on American soil. Mm -hmm. And right. so when we're talking about, oh, you know, look at mother nature, but then we're going to turn around and do the opposite. There was just a lot of contradictory statements. And uh, again, a lot of it based on protecting white and European exceptionalism. Mm. Yeah. And, and I'm sure not seen that way at all by the person saying it. No, I actually think the person wants to be, um, you know, more inclusive. and right. want, But, you know, I think it's the challenge, too, of, you know, how do you go up against centuries-old systems and teachings? Um, yeah. You might want to, but then, oh, they'll beat you back in place. And I know that more than anyone because in the class – I would introduce, you know, a question or a thought and I felt like I was being demonized. Like uh, all of a sudden I turned into the boogeyman. What, what like, do, do you remember one of those that, where that happened and have a sense of what that, like what the reaction was? So, um, well, one, and it wasn't uh, just a question about viticulture, but uh, there was a librarian um, in the class and for some reason, I, I, maybe because so much of the class was talking about history um, rather than the actual growing of the grapevines, <laughs> um, she brought up that she was very disturbed with um, the push to silence certain voices and to get rid of certain books. Mm -hmm. And the class was very, you know, mo the majority of the people in the class agreed that yes, there should be the spread of information. Right. And there was a, a, a woman in the class who was also black. 
And she kind of looked because the area that we were taking the class was actually in the news and known for really pushing to stop um, what people call uh, or what an author called CRT, critical race theory. Right. To stop any type of, uh, you know, teaching of history and bringing up race. And so the woman who's black, she kind of looked at me and and um, at Dennis and my child, (laughs) like, are they kidding? Like, this is where they fight hard to make sure that certain voices are muted. And so she kind of brought it up, but very gingerly. And she actually stopped herself from like she clearly did not feel comfortable bringing up that, you know, the hypocrisy in what they were talking about. And um, so then I raised my hand and and told her, you know, I'll go ahead and say what you're um, too reserved to say. And I said, well, you know, welcome to a little bit of our world as Black people in this country that, you know, as much as I see in this class that so much of your narrative is based on things that happened, you know, centuries ago when you, you're so proud of uh, the accomplishments that you report from something that you did not do, but then our voices have to be muted when we want to say how something developed culturally or economically or spiritually, whatever it is, um, you know, we're told, forget about it. That happened a long time ago. And one of the gentlemen in the class chimed in and he said, well, because, you know, um, people have done things wrong to everybody, everywhere. Everyone's done something wrong to someone. Hmm. And I said, well, that's true. But when we're talking about specific um, periods of time, specific uh, scenarios and incidents, then we, why are we not allowed to focus on that specific period of time where there's clearly, you know, um, an antagonist and clearly, you know, why, why does everything get, you know, all, all suffering matters when we want to talk about our story, but when you want to tell how your European great great grandpapa came from Italy and the and the adversity that he had to face and overcome to become successful, why is that okay to talk about? Why would you like it if I interrupted and said, "Look, everybody's had to struggle. Everybody had to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Someone's had some challenge of some sort. You wouldn't accept that, but yet so many people readily accept that for the black story. Hmm. And then I became the boogeyman and people wouldn't even sit next to me except for charity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The the reaction of the class, like it, you could feel like, uh, like an iciness from a lot of people and a lot of discomfort. And uh, I, I mean, I agreed with what Joyce was saying. Um, So that's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you, I mean, I mean, the funny thing for me, and not funny, but you know, the interesting thing is, you, you know, it's a class about viticulture, but it's about so much more. You know, like, uh, I mean, it's uh, we're at that point, and and what I hear in the instructor and what you're talking about, the instructor Joyce is just the, the you know, 
they're embodying this tension that's happening, I think, in the wine industry, but in, in, in larger than the wine industry as well, between this, like, you know, this thing that we, I love that, that quote, you know, like <laughs> observe nature and read a book and throw out the book if, if they disagree. And then let me teach you these accepted, you know, vitis vinifera, <laughs> viticultural exactly. techniques that are basically yeah. like extractive cap, you know, you know, economics based, uh, you know, agricultural systems that really ignore nature that they, you know, they're, it's more about how do we make these things work despite nature? <laughs> um, and that tension is so fascinating to me to see, you know, it embodied in this person who you know probably does want to do well by the world and by you guys to a certain extent. But I, I also, I mean, I remember the story that you told about just a comment they made that I think is one of those comments that probably gets made a dozen times a day in some form or another in some tone or another in wine circles about my Oaxacans and Zulus. If you can hold yes. that story. Um, so, um, it, talking about it, it was about trellising, right? It's about yes, trellising, right? was talking about different trellising systems and <laughs> canopy management and um, was showing this particular trellising system in which the trellis was uh, pretty high and talked about how much he admired that trellising system and thought it to be a very good strategy given the region um, that we're in and all of these things. But the problem is that he, he said, my Oaxacans are very short. And, and he goes on to laugh and, and, you know, take his hand like he's demonstrating the height that his Oaxacans, you know, uh, are at and said, so that wouldn't work. And he said, so unless we go out and get Zulus, um, you know, we'll have to stay with the trellising system. And my mouth dropped. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's I'm laughing because it's just, I, I mean, I, I'd have to cry if I didn't laugh. I and mean, can I tell you, I really believe that this person does not want to talk like that but it's that yes. socialization in right. that you know it's just so normalized to say you know these horrible things and and um and then it's also normalized not to address it like it's almost like again I'm demonized if I say something but I definitely I said my Oaxacans just like that Right, and right. I think I scared the crap out of him. And he kind of looked at me and then he realized, yeah, I referred to them as my Oaxacans. And, you know, he he very nervously laughed and then he went on with the lesson. Um, but also what it was is not just that he was claiming ownership of people. Right, you right. know, it's not like you said, hey, my team, because, you know, we'll say my team or my classroom or, you know, something right, right. of that. And it, but to say my Oaxacans, and that wasn't the only offensive part. It's that we know that actually some of the tallest people in the world are, if I'm not mistaken, like from like uh, European nations. Yeah, from the Netherlands. I lived there. Netherlands. I, I absolutely saw a report that the the tallest, um, you know, recorded uh, 
person was from the Netherlands. And so to say the Zulus, um, I know, I know. It showed that again, when we are talking about labor, field labor, his mind can only see black and brown people as laborers. Because he very easily could have said, you know, uh, we'll have to get some people from the Netherlands. Right. But I don't think his mind could wrap around the idea of having European people as, uh, well, white European, because, you know, we, we know that's, we're talking nationality uh, as opposed to the social construct of race, right? right. So white European people um, as laborers. Right. Yep. Yep. So these are, you know, these are the things um, that we had to deal with. Um, You know, I I still brought cookies. (laughs) My daughter, my daughter works in a bakery. So oftentimes I'd stop by the bakery and buy cookies and bring them to class. And even the people who didn't like me very much, you know, they grumbled and that, you know, was that peanut butter. Right. <laughs> and they reluctantly took it, <laughs> enjoyed it, but um, it was it was eye opening, and that's just for the viticulture class. And you know, soon after that one started, we started the wine hospitality class, and I saw a great deal of the same type of um, mindset and behaviors, and uh, a great deal of it is history. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that seems where the 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 crunch point ha- keeps coming up as in your classes as as you've been telling these stories. Yes. Now it made sense um with the wine hospitality to talk about the different regions that the the Vitis vinifera um varietals came from. So the history in that kind of made sense why, you know, to talk about it so much. Um where there was a little shift is that I saw now that it wasn't just the history that they were protecting so fiercely, but also now the definition of what a good wine is. Mm. And it's very exclusive, very tightly controlled. And even with the instructor who this is a different instructor um, and this instructor is um from Europe, uh, from Italy, I believe, and very, very territorial. And, um, you know, it's, you definitely see the bias when, when we're talking territorial and the type of grape varietals, it's, it's definitely not something that invites a lot of thinking outside of the box or creativity or exploration. Yeah. So what can you give an example of that? I mean, how did that come out in the class? That that's I mean, do you have any uh, you know specific moments where you felt like this exemplifies this sort of very extremely narrow and protected definition or idea? Well, he definitely, (laughs) we sampled, we sampled wines. And again, I, you know, I was a first time drinker. um, So 
you know, it was already a lot for me to try to process, well, what are we talking about here when we are, you know, evaluating wines? Um, but there was definitely a bias to lean towards wines from the areas that he uh, comes from or came from. And um, just, you know, how wonderful it was, even when, you know, we tasted wines from other regions and thought, no, that probably... Um, is something I like more. And it was funny because we giggled a lot because he got angry. <laughs> he got angry <laughs> when somebody um, did not like or particularly care for. Some were more vocal and said, you know, I just don't like this. And he'd, what do you mean? And, you know, he'd go on to convince <laughs> you as to why it, it tasted fantastic. And, um, you know, some of us wow. um, were a little more, you know, we put on the kid gloves and said, well, I kind of prefer this instead. But, you know, he'd say, really? And, you know, I wouldn't think that because, and, and really gave his take on everything um, rather than allow people to explore and develop um, their palate. Yeah. Like, so did he give you this sense of uh, the ability for taste to be a, a very largely subjective experience or, or it sounds like the uh, opposite no, he was He was very into the, you know, um, the mindset of, you know, like I, when we talk new world, old world, he kind of had a lot of those old world um, values, at least, you know, he, he explored a few other things, but sounds like he was leaning more toward that and that, yes, it's the, it's, you know, these are the best grapes in the world and, and the best thing for wine. And, and, um, you know, he talked about like, uh, the, you know, the American, I guess, I guess what, it, like the AVAs in, uh, in California and, um, you know, he showed us the history on the thing where the uh, Napa Valley cab um, shocked everyone. Right. Won that award. Um, and, you know, but he he kind of laughed a little at, at the particular AVA that uh, that was close to us. And, you know, um, said, you know, they're kind of the the I, I don't want to say like the laughing stock. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he described it. The laughing stock of the wine world. Um, and and I heard that also in the viticulture class and subsequently in the analogy class that I just finished this semester is that there's a reputation for that particular AVA that they're not taken very seriously by anyone, including other California <laughs> Uh, uh, wine country areas. And is, um, is that warranted? I mean, do you think that's warranted? Uh, it's definitely partially, I think because of the, the history, you know, in the sixties, people were, the grapes they were selling were for mass production. And if people were doing something at a better quality, it was like just to make at home. But I remember when I was um, studying just for like the entry level quartermasters, um, yeah, everything I read, it was like, and when I talked to people like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from here. Like, ah, where you guys are making, you know, trashy wine. And um, 
Right. I really had to deprogram myself to start honestly looking at the wines produced here and, you know, you know, why is this bad or not bad? And um, definitely have had come across some really exceptional wines from this area, actually, (laughs) after only really trying wines, even living here, but only trying wines from outside the area to learn about wine. Um, right, right. So we just started off with that negative perception, and um, I guess it's hard to to break out of it. <laughs> but yeah. also, so much of the area, it it a lot of places, it really just seems like they are just making wine to make money to just profit off tourism. And so I think that's the right. aspect too of the people who are really trying to express terroir, make really great wine is extremely small production. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are the ones that people look at them as like, eh, you know? Right. And I, I agree. I, the more that I was learning, um, I really do see that not all of it is just a marketing or just a, you know, strictly a control freak type of thing that, you know, because that's my region. I see the art. I see the, um, the knowledge and tradition and the things that go into, you know, this, this thing that kind of blends both art and science Right. Together. And it is something to be respected. It's not, you know, um, there's a lot of the crap is made up. I, there's no politically <laughs> correct way to say it. A lot of the crap is made up and it's very yeah. subjective. But I can see with the hard work and the, you know, really trying to figure things out and and how do we best express qualities of this grape in this in this thing called wine. Right. Um, but again, you know, what's this thing with saying that your art is the only good art and no one else has good art? Um, You know, country music is the only good genre of music and nothing else, not classical, not, you know, pop, not hip hop. That would be ridiculous. And so even (laughs) with, um, you know, with other, when we're talking wine, you know, why are we not exploring the grapes that grow naturally here and also going outside of grapes. Yeah. No. So I will, you just opened a can of worms for me, but (laughs) uh, in a good way, in a great way, but it is, I mean that again, it's going back to that, that definition of wine. Like why I I love that thinking of wine as an art and we don't, I mean, are, are right. Is there only one form of art? Like, obviously, we're well beyond that on the planet. And yet wine, for whatever reason, there's so many people who think it's not weird to defend this one subjective style. You know, this one, I mean, it's not like, it's not a monolith. There's a lot of different cultures within Europe of wine. Um and they are beautiful. They're beautiful, like you said. Like, I mean, they're worthy of admiration, respect. They're beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're delicious, you know, like, but they aren't the only one in the world. They're not the oldest ones in the world. <laughs> they're, and they're, you know, and it's, and it's not the best either, like, regardless of what those people think. Um, right. And yeah. And yet, so that's to talk where I to think any, the yeah. commercial, commercialism <laughs> comes in because, again, I'm feeling this want 
to explore outside of what has been the norm for centuries. And, um, you know, from back in Europe to carried here uh, into the Americas. But what do you do when there's somebody with a big stick saying you better produce this crap that, you know, uh, you know, hey, we have these women that want to come here with their big platform shoes on and their summer dresses and they want to yell woo and take selfies and they don't care about really um what went into it, they just know that, hey, this is what we heard about and this is what we're coming to be able to put on our Instagram page. And you have to produce those things. And, you know, there, I guess you don't have a lot of wiggle room financially because from what I'm seeing and being behind the scenes on some field trips and labs is that there's a lot of exploitation of people. And, you know, even when I think even the, the vineyards, like a lot of those vineyards are on stolen land that was passed down to, you know, generations, but nonetheless stolen land, um, and then exploited labor. I, there's, in my opinion, there's no way that they could be profitable, um, without, uh, exploiting illegal immigrant labor. Mm-hmm. And um, so when you already kind of don't have a lot of wiggle room, even though you cheat and steal and do some other things that go on um, where, you know, clearly money is the big driving factor in this. And then they just don't have the, the willingness to explore because you have to have that bottom line coming in consistently. Right. If you want to keep your job. Well, now, I mean, you. I, before I get just lured into these bigger discussions, you, <laughs> um, and and I want to keep keep us focused Do I a little need to bit. Bring you cookies now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is fantastic. No, uh, this is my cookie. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just can see us going in so many different directions. Um, I will, I will just jump back to you saying. And not that I want to talk about this, but your your idea of like, you know, maybe opening up the definition of wine for things that grow locally that aren't grapes. Um, like, where did you start thinking about those kind of things? I mean, for somebody who's new to wine, like, I mean, I, I'm, I'll just use myself. I'm not going to blame anybody else. But, you know, for me, for wine, it was years of me looking at the, you know, learning about the vinifera cultures of Europe. And until I started, until they finally started to unravel for me. But for a long time, I was just so eager to memorize all the different things that you can memorize in your, you know, court of master sommelier and wine spirits education trust training, you know, and, and pass all the tests and, you know, be smart about quote unquote wine. And, you know, it took years for me to start to think outside of that. So where did your where did these questions arise for you? Like, how did you so quickly start to see, you know, a broader scope of things? Like, what, where, where did that come from? I guess just um, hearing people talk about wine. Um, again, I'm not a drinker until just recently now, you know, tasting wines. Um, but I wasn't a beer drinker, uh, uh, any type of spirits. And, um, but you know, of course, the the most uh, 
familiar wine is the, you know, the grapes. That's what we know to be wine. But, you know, we I'd always hear someone say, oh, yeah, something, something, watermelon wine or or mm-hmm. um, or, uh, you know, peach or something. And, you know, I really didn't pay attention to the conversations because, again, as a non-drinker, th- that didn't matter to me unless I was just thinking like, OK, do I want to buy something as a gift for someone? Um, but once I got into the classes and <laughs> so here's the part and being silly, I asked the instructor for the wine hospitality class because, again, I have no knowledge. And when they're telling us, yes, you know, I I'm picking up, you know, notes of strawberry and, and you know, or fig or whatever it is. Right. Black, you know, black uh, berry fruits and things like that. I raised <laughs> my hand and I said, so do they mix those things? In? <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. If ever he gave me like the stare that I need needed to be in the corner with a dunce cap. <laughs> he he goes, you're joking, right? <laughs> I wasn't. I really, I really thought when they would say like, oh yeah, you know, um, there's like, I'm tasting, you know, apple or peach or pineapple or something. I really thought they were mixing in these other fruit juices. <laughs> Yeah. And then why wouldn't they? After that, I started asking, well, why don't you, you know, (laughs) Hey, I, I love other types of fruits. So I would want to know why are we not? And they said they do, but, um, that's not what we're, you know, talking about here. (laughs) Well, and that, and this is the really interesting observation that you, you just made me, I mean, I'm, if I can put it in terms that I, that I'm thinking about, it's, it's sort of like in the course of most of our lives, we encounter this wide diversity, I think, or a much wider diversity of wine. Well, maybe that's not true. It depends on where you come from and things like that. But I know personally for me, like you said, you encounter like peach and watermelon wines. And like where I grew up, it was like strawberry and blueberry wines and all these for cherry wines and stuff like that. But then when I started to formally study wine, those things were completely absent and not only absent, they were excluded. And there was only one kind of thing that you could study and learn about that was worthy of studying and learn about. And so there was this, yeah. So there's this um, dichotomy, the split between your real lived experience on the ground as a person going through the world. And then this theoretical, like what is acceptable and what is the right kind of wine to to study and learn about? And it's very, you know, they're two diver- divorced things. I mean, you encounter the grape wines too, but that's not the only thing you encounter. Um, that's really, that's a really interesting thing. I... And, and to hear, again, um, there were people in, in the class, uh, much like charity, um, that they work um, in the wine industry, or they were somehow involved in the wine industry um, as growers, as even home winemakers, or working for um, local wineries. And there's this desire that was constantly expressed to carve out their special, you know, uh, identity, their, their like, uh, is the word like a, a niche to say, hey, this is what we're going to be known for instead of just chasing after 
being a disrespected kind of, you know, right, <laughs> a, right. a cheap imitation of someone else's identity. Yeah. How do we carve out our own? And so I love that question. And um, so when I would present ideas like, why are we not looking at the native grapes here and, and figuring out how to, you know, express the qualities of those grapes? <sighs> in this fermented drink called wine. And, but it's kind of like, well, no. And then they kind of go against themselves. Right, right, right. This desire. And trying to redefine themselves. They're still just doing it in reference. Like I'm the one that's going, come on guys. Like, you know, (laughs) I I don't know if you've ever watched Pippi Longstocking, but she had her little (laughs) friend, Annika and whatever her, the brother's name. And she was always saying, come on, you guys leave the yard. Let's go explore, you know, (laughs) and it's like, they're always wanting to go outside of it, but very, very afraid to even discuss going outside of it. Yeah. It's like almost like you're shamed to get back in that box. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, your region isn't alone that way. I, I mean, obviously, we're, we're carefully trying to avoid saying the name of your region, but I'll just say, <laughs> you know, somewhere that you guys aren't like the Finger Lakes region of New York. I mean, they have bent over backwards and they use so many chemicals to be able to grow European grapes in a place where European grapes absolutely do terribly. Um, and, you know, most of the time, every once in a while, you get a good vintage out of some European grapes. Specifically, one or two varieties do okay um, every once in a blue moon. But most of the time, it's just like you have to, do so much to make them work and they in at the same time they are there are beautiful like amazing unlimited like just limitless varieties of you know feral pear and apple trees growing wild all around there that make i think some of the world's best cider if done well and there are some producers there who are showing that and i'm like you guys just or or there's like the forests are full of native grapes that clearly grow wild without any help at all from humans and if we just didn't have that prejudice uh you know this is a region that could just be booming with like tons of amazing fruit that just doesn't fit into that vinifera model so i I, it's that it's that thing like i i know that it, it has to do with everything that you're talking about you know it's this idea that there is only one kind of wine and it and it can't come from these other kind of grapes or these other kinds of fruit. And if it's not this one kind of wine, then it's not worth buying. It's not worth talking about. It's not worth studying. Yeah, I think uh, so. It's an here, idea that needs to die. <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, when you know, with the enology class that I just finished, you know, we go to different um, different wineries, kind of like you know, to observe the behind the scenes and. Um, I just remember looking at Dennis and saying, it's like they're freaking making Kool-Aid. And I later when we got in the car, I said, you know, I was thinking, especially after hearing all the history of things that, you know, it's just these like super brilliant people that are like born with this like gift and like nobody else has it. And like, you know, they wake up every morning and they tenderly kiss each grape and, you know, and sing songs to them at night and this wonderful wine comes from it. And when we went behind the scenes, I was like, the amount of manipulation that has to go into making this product 
is ridiculous. And I remember reading a few that they'd have us kind of look at articles and, and give a summary or an idea of what the article was talking about. And some of them would talk about the naturalists versus, you know, um, the more modern winemakers. And again, there's, there's um, something valuable in all of it. You sure. know, we can't control um, nature and sometimes nature, she dishes out things that, you know, we go, oh, darn, you know, we're going to have to fix this and fix that if we want to, you know, meet our demand for this particular product um, or to make sure that this crop is not, you know, wasted. Um, so the scientific part of, you know, adding things to kind of correct something that didn't go the way that you would hope. Um, I, I see a lot of uh, great things in that as well. But now I understand, too, why the naturalists are very um defensive about their strategies and skills because it again it's an art and it is something that takes a while to learn and figure out and and so it kind of sucks when you take so much time to study something and and figure things out and then someone else just says yeah let me pour a little bit of this and and you know do that to it and do a you know it's kind of like Dexter's laboratory if anybody has children and this little guy in the lab um you know i could see where both sides you know have their argument but back to the whole thing is why is that the only argument? Why are we still only saying, you know, vitus vinifera? Why are we not saying, hey, that same uh, attitude that, you know, what you like, there's a, there's um, consumers, you know, for that particular thing. What about other, other fruits? What about um, even the grapes that are native to these lands? What, why can't we, Try to see what, you know, if you're such naturalists, then wouldn't you say the natural thing to do is to use the grapes or the fruits that um, that need the least amount of manipulation from this area? I don't know. Just a question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Well, um, you know, just to give you an open forum for any other insights, you know, that came out of taking this experience for you. I mean, are there, did you have a, a best moment, a worst moment, a, a thing that made you see things that you'd like to see change or something that excited you um, in terms of, you know, just in wine and, the, and even just with wine education in general? Um, so I know it sounds like I had such a horrible experience and I'd have to say there were horrible moments, but there were good, you know, good things about I met, um, I met people. It introduced me to a world that I was unfamiliar with. And so anytime I'm learning something, um, that's just pretty awesome for me. And even with some of the, you know, very ex exclusive mindsets. It was still interesting to hear the histories. It's still, um, again, the art and the science of it all. Um, there's something to be respected there. So those are kind of the best things. And then I met my friend Charity there. <laughs> um, <laughs> the worst that I'm still experiencing is that I'm 
definitely seeing that as a black person in the class, there's in some cases unintentional, but in some cases a very intentional um, discouraging Mm. black people from even wanting to participate or, you know, enter into this, into this world. You know, I can ask a question um, based on something, you know, a speaker brought up and all of a sudden there's this big ring around the rosy dance to avoid answering what I think is a pretty um, simple and uh, logical question. Um, they ask us to give you an example. They often ask us at the beginning of the semester, whatever class we're taking, you know, to introduce ourselves and why we are taking the class. And um, Mm. I said, I was interested in, you know, maybe starting a small, a small vineyard and learning how to make wine. And one of the speakers who is part of like a a small wine growers group. She went on to, you know, not, not in response to my introduction, this is after, you know, another 10, 12 people introduced themselves and why they're getting into it. She, you know, told her story and went on to say that, you know, she does it as a hobby, but it is an extremely, expensive hobby. And she went on and on and on about how expensive this hobby is. And you might want to think twice. Um, So when I asked her, um, because I said I was thinking about doing it, can you kind of give me an idea of what those costs are as a hobby? Um, And she did everything in the world to avoid answering that question and went on to tell jokes, you know, well, you know what they say in, in the wine world, if you want to make a million dollars, you better invest too. Ha ha ha. And uh, first of all, we weren't talking about commercial or business, you know, uh, wine we were talking about as a hobby. And I said, um, if you don't mind asking, because you are the person bringing up how expensive it is, you know, um, what is the size of your operations about how many vines do you have and how much um, production do you get? And, you know, how does that look as far as how many bottles of wine? Oh, it was like pulling a a, a impacted wisdom tooth, (laughs) you know, with a pair of pliers. You went from student to dentist. (laughs) My goodness. It was, it was, awful. And she just did not want to answer. And finally she'd answer that. And then I'd say, okay, so kind of what's the average cost? And she just kept telling me, you know, it's very expensive, very expensive. And I mean, then I felt like I was in a battle and, um, finally she answered and it really wasn't that expensive. Yes, it did cost a nice little penny, but it wasn't like the way she was talking, I was thinking for just, you know, and we weren't talking facilities. We weren't talking like buildings or anything. We were just talking about the actual, you know, uh, things to ferment, uh, to crush, um, to press, um, and to store bottle right. things like that. And it, you know, she was saying it was somewhere around, you know, five to seven thousand dollars. 
Right. But, right. you know, I was thinking, my goodness, what you like, I thought for a minute she was going to tell me like 150,000 or something that, right. you know, right. and, um, and I thought, okay, I don't know what that's about, but I noticed whenever I'd ask a question, she went all around the world and back um, before answering it. But when someone else asked a question, um, you know, said they had a vineyard or that they have a small uh, wine production equipment and um, asked her a question, she'd immediately offer up the answers. Hmm. Explain to them things, give them additional resources where they could. And I, you know, I don't think I was being sensitive because I'm very mindful not to, you know, just think everything is race when actually, let me go ahead and say in this country. Yeah. Mostly everything is <laughs> race, you know, that's, that's the, the, you know, it was woven into the tapestry of this country, right. You know, uh, right. every little application, everything we could have casual conversation and I can say something as simple as, you know, oh, this woman, but instead instead of saying this woman walked by in Target, we'll say, oh, this Asian woman walked by. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. Like it has no context. So yeah, you know, race is very much a part of it. But definitely there was not a willingness to answer questions for me or for Dennis, who also is black. And the other young lady that was in the class, um, she went to one of those meetings and she just felt so uncomfortable um, that she didn't go back. I think she did go back one time with charity. Yeah, uh. so like, you know, we almost need white protection. Like, come on, Cherry. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh. I feel like when Dave Chappelle said, like, whenever you get in the car, you always need that white friend with you in case the police pull you over. Right. <laughs> that was like charity to us. Um, and even it was interesting, there was a conversation in which the other uh, Black student when she wanted to bring up, uh, you know, something back to the whole history thing and, and voices being muted, um, once I spoke up and she saw how uncomfortable to angry and everything within that range that the white um, students in our class, you know, demonstrated through what they said or their facial expressions or their body language, um, she then kind of turned on me a little bit to, you know, try to make sure to soften. And, you know, I had to have a discussion with her privately and say, please don't ever do that. If you're uncomfortable with expressing yourself, that's okay. But don't go against what my feeling or my narrative is. And she said, well, you know, yeah, that's kind of a habit to make them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so you almost feel like, okay, you kind of stick your big toe in the swimming pool to, to gauge the temperature. But once she saw that it was not a safe place for us to really be, then she turned to, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the cool one. I'm the, I'm the good one. Um, mm -hmm. And they immediately, she told me after I left, they all ran to her um, to get her take on, you know, on things because they saw her as the safe black person in the class. Mm. 
that will uphold their narrative. Right. Right. So it was very interesting. And, um, and you're going, gosh, this is just about wine, but it is right. so representative. Right. Even when you take the race stuff out of it, just the the exclusivity of it all, yeah. just even in the type of grapes, like what is considered good there. And so my last question to my instructor in the wine hospitality classes you know, there's so much about Torah and, you know, we have the best because of our soil, our climate, nothing else is good, only this. Well, what the heck are y'all going to do when this thing called climate change keeps spanking your butts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's going to be your selling point at that? Because right now we're seeing it uh, right before our eyes, the, you know, uh, this climate, um, and the weather is, it's doing things that are unprecedented and it's causing a lot of issues in that, in that vineyard. Yeah. So now what? Yeah. Those places that were, yeah, these, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's really interesting to say that that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you're not safe. Um, <laughs> is that, yeah. to, which is, change. uh, I think what I like about you, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and why I think I want, you know, what I was very excited to share your voice because it's not a safe, you're not asking the safe questions. So thanks for that. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and is there anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, I just want to say that um, this is an exciting time. Um, it is a time to seize um, instead of to fear. And that goes for even the people who have the traditional winemaking, you know, uh, concepts and, and um, because on this last class for the enology class, one of my um, fellow students asked, well, what is the future of wine? And I thought, what an odd question, but it uh, again demonstrates this, you know, we think there's just one answer. <laughs> it demonstrates that that unwillingness, uh, unwillingness to, you know, be creative and think outside the box. And the instructor was, you know, shrugging, her shoulders and kind of like, I don't, I don't know. And started kind of going into some of the problems they see in the vineyard and ways to kind of resolve them. And I just said, look, it's what we make it. Mm. I like that. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank so you guys. We'll leave, leave it at that before I open mouth and insert foot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Charity, any closing thoughts from you? Yeah. So I think, um, part of why things are so homogenous right now is it's so hard to find easily accessible information about like branching out. Like that's something that listening to your podcast and even taking the viticulture class, just learning more about regenerative agriculture, looking more into that being like, okay, there's, you know, way different ways of doing things, but trying to look more into about, well, you know, what, how could we, you know, accommodate more indigenous plants and just not 
being able to find that information. So I think a big part of why we're so entrenched um, in the way things have been is there's not a lot of easily accessible information about how to even start change or people who are doing things differently, like just having to dig so hard to find information about these growers and these producers and how things they're doing differently and how that information just seems like it's kind of like, um, um, just you have to like know someone to then find out about Mm. like what's going on. And so I'm not quite sure. Yeah. It's a vicious circle of, yeah. How to, how to, the, the entrenched culture begets the entrenched culture because it's so hard to break that circle. Yeah. Um, Or how to even, start making this information more easily accessible. I mean, that's, that's something I've been wondering about. And, uh, for my side, I'm like, man, I need to just learn, you know, chemistry and biology and genetics just so we can just figure it out for ourselves. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, it's tough too. It's yeah. Like it puts a, a lot of weight on your shoulders to, to, <laughs> to be able to do that. Well, I, I mean, Thank you guys. Hopefully you're sharing your story, uh, Joyce and, and you too, Charity, will help get some of this information out and at least inspire people uh, to th- maybe be more thoughtful if they mm-hmm. are instructing with their own wine education, when they're talking about wine to other people, how they're communicating about wine. I, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people who have wine knowledge educate and it's not always just in a formal way. Sometimes it's through marketing. Sometimes it's through, you know, tasting rooms. Sometimes it's, you know, just in the way that they talk to other people about wine. So I hope what you guys have said, what you've shared, Joyce, about your experiences open people up to be more thoughtful about what they're doing with that. So I really appreciate you sharing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing our voice and thanks for, all your episodes like that's for in terms of my education has helped so much like really appreciate the podcast well there we go thank you so much for listening if you are a young person or you're new to wine i just want you to know how valuable your perspective and questions are I hope you've seen that with Joy, somebody who just stepped in from the outside and was like, wait, what's going on here? And it's those questions like, what are you, what the heck are you doing that help us to grow and help us to see ourselves from outside perspective? So the fact that you don't know much might actually be a really amazing asset to the wine world. So I just wanted to give that encouragement to anybody who's new, getting started, falling in love with wine and trying to figure it out so many things, so many questions that you have while you're figuring it out might be helping me and others figure it out. So keep asking those questions and don't, don't uh, be afraid to speak up.